0: First up today on this episode of the Plowcast, a look at Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death. So, a weighty topic, but it's in our nature to avoid death. And how do we transcend that? I'm Peter Momsen, the editor of Plow Quarterly.
1: And I'm Susanna Black, senior editor at Plow. We're also excited to be talking with Sora Bamari about his new book, The Unbroken Thread Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos.
0: And this is the fourth in a series of six podcasts where we're talking about nat- uh, Plow's nature issue. That's right here. And hearing from some of our contributors. And now to the conversation. So uh, this is a topic, death, that we don't normally just do for fun. Um, but we have this beautiful article from Kelsey Osgood, a wonderful writer down in New York City uh on Ernest Becker famous for the denial of death a kind of classic have you ever read that book
1: I have not read the denial of death this made me want to
0: probably we should first summarize a little what Kelsey writes here so Kelsey is a good friend she's a convert to orthodox Judaism she's actually working on an amazing project um about millennial women who convert to kind of hardcore religions um
1: Can't wait for that.
0: Yeah. And so she's obviously drawn to some of these big questions of life. And, of course, death is one of the big looming ones that, you know, lots of people try to avoid thinking about. But after this past year of COVID, maybe a lot more people have been forced to grapple with the reality of that. Um, And in this piece... She writes about her own experience, starting as a grad student, where she's taking care of a kind of terminally ill professor, right, who's really difficult to look after.
1: Who's not dying
0: well. He is not dying well. Ernest Becker seemed to be one of these God-adjacent people, although right. apparently, as she recounts, he, he converted on his own deathbed at age 49 of colon cancer. Right.
1: His claim is that kind of all everything that we do If Freud would say that everything we do is about sex, Becker, it seems to me, um, is saying that everything we do in our lives essentially is attempting to distract ourselves or deal with or um, address our fear of death. And he goes through a couple of different sort of, he apparently suspends the book, kind of shredding all of the different things that we do in order to try to deal with our fear of death. And he dismisses psychoanalysis, although then he later kind of tries to say, well, maybe there's a way to tweak it. And he is critical of religion in certain ways, but he also ends up saying something like, or at least she reads him as saying, only a God can save us. Um, Like, basically, yeah, this is the solution. This is kind of really the only solution to this, um, this fear of death. And I... There is something incredibly appealing and important for Christians to remember um, because so much of what, you know, what our culture, I I think that Becker is entirely spot on. And so much of what our culture does in attempting to talk about death, even in a sort of healthy way, is to do things like, well, death is a part of life. Death is natural. It's nothing to be feared. um, Embrace it. And Christianity is, you know, Christianity's like, no, death, death is an enemy. We fixed it. Jesus fixed it. And, um, we are now, you know, I forget which, which of the epistles it was, but Paul says that humans have been enslaved to the fear of death mm. and now we're set free of that slavery. And it's kind of, it reminds me of that, um, there's this st- stupid YouTube thing where a guy's talking to his girlfriend and she's talking about like just the enormous amount of pressure she feels and like the sort of pain that she's going through and, um, and he keeps kind of trying to cut in, and she says, "You know, stop trying to like solve the problem. Let me just like explain my feelings and stop being so solvey. And he's like, "Okay, but," and it finally turns out that she has like a, a nail stuck in her forehead, and he's like, "I really think it probably if you just took the nail out of your forehead, things would get a lot better for you, and you wouldn't feel so much pain and pressure." And that's kind of the Jesus approach to the fear of death. Um, it seems to me like he just defeats it. It's the enemy. It's dead. And she is Jewish, she's not Christian, but- Kelsey. She, Kelsey herself yes. is Jewish. She's not Christian, but she is an Orthodox Jew, and it seems pretty clear that she has a belief in personal immortality, um, the immortality of the soul. And it's just, you know, you can't beat it. You know, you, you can't beat actually defeating death. It's kind of the way to go.
0: Well, and it was moving here, reading um, many of the Orthodox Jewish prayers Uh uh, relating to to death. Um, We also have another fantastic piece on plow uh, Mm -hmm. by uh, uh, Atar Hadari, Mm -hmm. who's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi over in the UK, Mm -hmm. writing on the Psalms that are said at funerals, and Mm -hmm. specifically about his father's funeral. And I remember reading there and being struck that um, these this Jewish uh, liturgy for funerals almost expresses a hope and a resurrection more strongly than many Christian funerals that I've been to Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and is repeatedly expressed. Mm -hmm. I do kind of wonder, though, um, about one thing. So as I was reading this about Ernest Becker's book and Kelsey's beautiful article, which you should certainly read, and we don't want to just rehash it here because you should actually read it. Be it reminded me of a book that I did read recently. It came out last year by um, Yale professor Martin Hagland, mm-hmm. who's a socialist philosopher mm-hmm. uh, and wrote a book which is superb and which I disagree with strongly, but is excellent, called This Life. Mm-hmm. Where it essentially goes out to prove the opposite of what, where Becker at seems to have landed up and he says you know actually mortality finitude the fact that we don't have endless time Mm -hmm. is the strongest argument for it's the only argument for using your life in a good way Mm -hmm. and um, actually any hankering after eternity um, is hinders us from living a good life and his book the first half of it is a huge argument against any type of uh, religion, any type of belief in Im- immortality. Uh, his argument is essentially that if we really did have endless time, there would be no reason to do anything. There would be no reason to do worthwhile things. There would mm-hmm. no reason to do good things, and, and life would just have become insipid. Mm-hmm. Um, the second half of the book, not coincidentally, is an impassioned argument for uh, democratic socialism. <laughs> um and I, I really enjoy the book because he engages deeply with Kierkegaard or uh-huh. Augustine, many of the same people that Becker mm-hmm. engaged with in his book, and you would think would be a Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. um, would be sort of on the believer's side. Mm-hmm. And yet to in and, and it's their works themselves uh-huh. that actually um, events a, a certitude that it's actually this life that matters and that we don't really – Christians don't really truly believe yeah. in the next life. He even ends uh, with Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to the mountaintop speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and the words he said on the day before his assassination is kind of evidence that Martin Luther King, you know, ha- had kind of two sides of his brain. And the part, the good Martin Luther King that was really working for justice, didn't really believe in his own personal immortality. Huh. Otherwise, he wouldn't, uh, you know, because if you can live endlessly, then, you know, why do it? Why do it? Um.
1: That's Leon Cass's argument, mm. sort of. I mean, uh, or he comes very close to that kind of thing. And I think that there's like a way in which Christianity, not to be annoying, um, not to be like a Christianity stand, but.
0: Well, you know, we are kind of Christianity stands on this podcast. Yeah, okay, that's
1: fine. Um, we'll I, talk to I, it. Yeah. Um, there's a distinction between eternal, eternal continuation of life or, you know, prolongation of life, which strikes me as potentially nightmarish, and Christian immortality or resurrection, um, basically because we don't really know what the eternal life is going to be like, mm. or is going to be, and we also believe very strongly that what we do here impacts how that is going to go down for us, in fact. Um,
0: so what we're doing now does matter, What we're doing now
1: does matter massively, and in part it matters because it's going to be in some way amplified. Um, caught up in the eternal life.
0: As I said, I couldn't disagree more with Martin Haglund, mm-hmm. but it's a really, really good book for Christians to read mm-hmm. because it's a well-stated challenge. A- and what he elides though, is Christianity's teaching, which he said at the beginning, and Christ's teaching, that death is the enemy. Mm-hmm. Death is a real enemy that needs to be fought and required the ultimate sacrifice mm-hmm. to win over. And when you are with somebody, say, suffering with cancer... I think many of us can say, from personal experience, that death is an enemy. It's not going gently into, you know, the, you know, the, the leaves fall in autumn, right? Yeah. It's it's a horrible thing, and it's really only belief in a resurrection that isn't just a kind of natural process mm-hmm. that the soul just sort of naturally lives on, mm-hmm. but really did require, you know, Jesus to suffer and die and uh, uh, the new life of the kingdom to come. It's only in that context that belief in the resurrection kind of makes sense when you're actually with somebody who's facing the end of their life. And that's one thing I did want to talk about. So down from the level of ideas here, Susanna, Mm. I think that moderns, including modern Christians, um, because of what we actually do when it comes to death, the kind of rituals of death, Mm. um, actually play into, uh, you know, the fear of death. Mm -hmm. Many people die in a hospital. They stay there. You call the undertaker. The undertaker takes the body away. There's some type of preparation of the body by professionals off somewhere. The body is not still the beloved person that's you know, I mean, to, to be blunt, in, in, in a cooler in a business somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then it's brought out and displayed and people visit and feel awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, Kelsey speaks of the contrast between her secular friends and her mm-hmm. Orthodox Jewish friends around the death, a death that she recounts in this mm-hmm. piece. and um, And then there's a funeral that's, sort of designed around the needs of people to be able to fly in and fly out and not disturb their work schedules too mm-hmm. much. For me, one of the highlights of, of living in, in the Bruderhof community is actually, oddly enough, when somebody passes away. Because in, in a community life, not I realize this is not um, just in the Bruderhof. It actually was the case for most traditional cultures. You know, the family really literally is around the the dying person you know we do quite a bit to make that possible and then um I know like when my grandfather died it was very meaningful for us to like ourselves wash the body dress dress him prepare prepare the place where he'd be and then we have this this kind of custom of all somebody always being with the person up through the funeral so um and we'll do that all at home. I remember doing this once with a, a brother um, who had died very abruptly when I was living in Germany and, and how, you know, for the neighbors it was very f- almost freaky, the idea that you would have a, a dead body in your house mm-hmm. for several days. Mm-hmm. But um, in a way they really appreciated it and, and one of my friends who had lost his mother early you know, just came and would would sit by um, the body during the, the wake which lasted mm-hmm. three or four days and, and I think it was almost a chance to experience something that he hadn't. Mm-hmm. hadn't. And then to build the casket yourself, to, to dig the grave yourself, to lower the, the coffin in yourself and fill the, co- the, the grave up yourself. Those are all things that I, I just, you know, I'm not saying this in a sort of bruderhof of cultural nationalist. nationalist. Well, so <laughs> you I, are I, totally who, a
1: brooder of cultural nationalist. But, but
0: <laughs> I, I feel for people who, who don't have the chance to do that for yeah. their loved ones because I think it's so important to just kind of accept the bodily nature of death and yeah. go through it, um, to to see it, to, to feel it, to touch it, yeah. for it not to be this scary thing. Um, and it really helps you also come to terms with the fact that, hey, this is going to be me someday. Yeah,
1: My grandfather, when he died, he was at home, in actually in the house that I live in now, which is my great-grandparents' house. And his he's got six kids, and they were mostly all around him. And actually, one of my uncles was in the bed with him when he died, and then they washed his body and um, did not dig the graves themselves, the grave themselves. But, um, yeah, that is, I, I remember, his was the first kind of, like, I don't know, my, my grandmother had died earlier, but when he was dying, when Grandpa was dying, I told him um, something like, I, it was the first time, it was, like, right after I'd converted, and I told him that I real I was thinking of death as kind of a graduation, mm-hmm. like, and I, I think that that's kind of like stuck with me. I do I do think of death as graduation, and I think of and I think we should think of seniors as the kind of like, I don't know, seniors in college, graduating
0: senior yeah. class,
1: yeah, um, and like about to go out into this kind of other world that where their real lives are going to start in a way, and um, yeah, I was really. I was very glad to be able to have very tiny little bits of conversation about mm. that with him before he died. I was pretty chicken about talking about it, though, because I was chicken about talking about my faith.
0: Right, right. Well, and it's tough, right? I mean, I, I, my last conversation with my grandfather, I, uh, you know, he, he, he was so matter-of-fact about it. He said, I've lived this happy and fulfilled life, and uh, he, you know— Alternated the last uh, days of his life with... We've just read stuff aloud. It was mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis and then Che Guevara's Motorcycle Diaries mm-hmm. and then, you know, Louis Armstrong and, and it was just... Went on a cycle and he didn't really... You know, he's you know he really was actually one of these people for whom... In one sense, it, it wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. A- and I think there's that kind of childlike faith that you see mm-hmm. in people who have lived a life of service. Whether or not Ashley... They're believers mm-hmm. that can kind of guide them through those last things. Well, there is an aspect to this too, though, where in modern culture you're seeing more and more an emphasis on sort of a customized death. And it takes the, the form of everything from elaborate plans for customized funerals yeah. um, to in fact, you know, the desire to control the moment when one goes.
1: And that I think is we have to kind of like distinguish between that both of both aspects of obviously actual euthanasia or you know assisted suicide is a lot worse than like cutesy hipster morticians which are apparently a thing that she mentions here um, euthanasia is worse than hipster morticians but I think they're both aspects of the same thing like trying to make your death. A part of like an expression of your aesthetic or a part of meaningful in a kind of like consumerist or um, artistic way.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to conclude with uh, quoting a Hasidic uh, tradition from Kelsey Osgood's piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said, she says it's one of her favorite teachings and it's, I think, rapidly becoming my, one of mine. It is said of Reb Simcha Bunem that he carried two slips of paper. One in each pocket. On one he wrote, Bishvili nivra haolam," for my sake the world was created. On the other he wrote, uh, "Vanohi afar vefer." Apologies for the Hebrew pronunciation. I am but dust and ashes. He would take out each slip of paper as necessary, as a reminder to himself. So on one side. For my sake, the world was created, and the other, I am but Dustin Nash.
1: I actually bracketed that, too, and, I, and she says that she got a necklace made for herself with, like, that uh, engraved on each side. And I love that so much that I kind of think I might want...
0: think you might copy that. <laughs> I
1: think I might copy that.
0: So we're delighted to welcome Sora Bamari, the New York Post op-ed editor, and the author of a new book, Susanna. Uh, l- l- let's see it.
1: There it is. Uh, it is the unbroken thread, discovering the wisdom of tradition in an age of chaos, and it is twelve chapters of. Is it twelve chapters? Yeah, it's twelve chapters, each of which looks at a particular figure um, as an who spent whose life's work was an answer in some way or another to one of these gigantic questions, um, and you, much like the Decalogue, you divide it up into the things of God and the things of man. Um,
0: Sorab, is this book sort of Jordan Peterson, the Jordan Peterson book that should have been written? So I have to say I've not done
2: any serious engagement with Jordan Peterson's work other than watching some of his de- debates where he demolished uh, various like BBC <laughs> interviewers. Um, so um, I, and but I will say I mean I think you know to my publishers it was attractive to do de- a book that has like 12 things in it. But I don't know why I picked the number 12. It, you know, is it, it? It's a good number. It's a good
1: number. It's, it's a number
2: apostles, number. you know, what have you. Yeah. Um, and it just, I don't know. It sounded. And I, I had 12 questions. I didn't have 10 questions. So then there you go. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to give a frank answer, I think maybe the publisher wants to position it
0: in the Jordan Peterson space. But I didn't think of it like
1: that. It's a lot better than Jordan Peterson.
0: And I, I'm I'm a <laughs> am a, I'm a quasi Jordan Peterson defender, but there is a lot more in this book and I really appreciated reading it. I also think that a lot more people will appreciate it than they even might Think they would want to read the book?
1: Yeah, you are like you get you get in there with like Dworkin and Howard Thurman, and as well as obviously Augustine and and C.S. Lewis, and so on. And that was really well done. I thought that the selection was really well done.
0: We should talk about tradition because that's what it's about, right? Um, being guided by tradition, and uh, there's a quote from Joseph Ratzinger in one of the early chapters, perhaps the first. Um, speaking about how in former times people grew up surrounded by tradition and would give them a shape to their lives. And you describe, and it was really fascinating to me to hear more about what it was like for you growing up first in Iran um, under the Ayatollah and then coming to the United States, um, appreciating the unconstrained freedoms of American culture and then gradually growing more critical of them what i could really relate to uh was the way that the birth of your son um kind of changed the calculus for 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 you on some of these things could you talk a little bit about that yeah thank you peter it's absolutely true i mean especially for
2: someone from my background and my milieu when you get married it's not much more than it feels like you know you've been dating and then you keep dating together in a house and you're playing house in a way until children come and suddenly everything becomes more, I hate to use a cliche term, but everything does become more existential. Everything suddenly becomes more serious. You're responsible for this little creature's, you know, uh, life. And for me also, this strange thing happened where in my twenties when I was starting out in journalism, you know, doing in, in, in London and in New York, um, and just kind of basically being almost a paradigmatic liberal subject, just traveling around and, and, and the world seems to be made for people like me. Um, I never thought about um, death in a serious way. Uh, suddenly when, I, when we learned we have a, a child on the way, I have this sense of, of, of posterity with a capital P looming over my whole life. What am I passing on? And so, um, uh, not, not much more. Not much more to add than what you said. That everything really becomes serious when you have children, because you there is this projection of your own self into the future that you have to
0: try to shape. And what seems, you know, really terrifying about that is the sense that, you know, what will this child's life be like, and what will actually shape them. Um, and, and it seems to me what where we've come to as a, as a wider society is that <clears throat> parents really are able to make some decisions about how they live their own lives, but really what shapes a kid uh, is far beyond our control. And I think that's some of the the, the, the things that I found most fascinating about this book is how, how does one bring up a child... Uh, with with a sense of tradition, with a sense that there is something that I belong to, that I owe something to, that I might have um, obligations to uh, in a way that actually kind of has real traction when it comes to life decisions that I might make.
2: Over against um, a wider ambient society that that tells that child, him or her, you know, you really, um, there are no obligations that you should even worry about that you don't consciously accept. Um, at its most okay. extreme, obviously, um, you're now seeing uh, there are liberal ideologues who question, you know, baptism and circumcision as as an imposition on a on a child who can't consent okay. yet. So that that's a an unacceptable imposition on the child's life. Um, but in much more, I and mean, that's a kind of extreme case. But a much more diffused and subtle ways society, you know, tells them that, tells us um, that uh, the world is um, about keeping your options open. The world is about maximizing your choices. Freedom is really just your ability to choose from among contraries. You know, you can wear blue shoes or red shoes or black shoes, and that's freedom. Um, And in all these cases, and all those forces work against um, any sense of obligation to the past of, inheriting something and passing it down all those things we associate with tradition Ratzinger calls it the firm program of the past.
1: And the thing about the book which is I don't know very appealing to me is that as well as like this sort of sense of the importance of tradition, you're not you're using these kind of like actual existential questions which I, I just kind of want to like throw some of these out here to just see to let people know what they would be getting into if they read it. How do you justify your life? Is God reasonable? Um, Can you be spiritual without being religious? Does God need politics? Should you think for yourself, which was kind of my favorite chapter? um, What is freedom for? What do you owe your body? Like, it's you're not like the cool thing about the structure is that you're not um, just presenting a set of uh, answers without without searching and you're presenting these people as searchers who have come to you know in every case virtually accept some some form of traditional wisdom but not as a kind of like arbitrary thing as 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 the end of a process which um was intelligent and responsible and even the chapter on should you think for yourself which was about Newman um showed Newman's kind of like final, you know, getting to the idea of the ascent of the will and the ascent of the intellect to authority through a um, through kind of intense questioning and without uh, being bullied or bullying himself into it. This is like, a, this is a genuine free and yet a free acceptance of constraint in a way that increases your freedom.
2: So, yeah, I I will just say very briefly that um, someone else pointed this out and I don't think if I consciously made the choice, but it worked out that way and worked out in a way that I'm very proud of and I I like about the book that except for a few, you know, someone like uh, Thomas Aquinas is so at home in Christendom in the Latin West as it existed in his time. And, you know, obviously there are various forces that are that trouble him and to which he responds with the Summa and and so forth. But except for him, all the other characters are searchers, are, are not at home in some ways. Um, Andrew Dworkin obviously you know, kind of very much alienated from, from her own time, even from the feminist movement, let alone wider American society. Um, uh, uh, John Henry Newman obviously rebelling against um, Victorian Anglican trends and very much becoming an outcast after his from famous conversion. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, obviously, uh, exiled, not fitting into communist order, but also then coming to the West and finding himself reviled as a... Once he starts criticizing the West, he's reviled as a as a reactionary and a theocrat and a mystic. So um, I did not really consciously set out to, to make it so, but it's nice because in a way that speaks to our condition and suggests that um, the search for good and true traditions is always fraught, is always arduous. And, you know, we can put ourselves in the shoes of these figures, rather than just sort of like tradition with a capital T, stable, uh, you know, untroubled, so to speak, um, unproblematic.
0: And that's what I appreciated so much about the book, too. Um, It wasn't a series of sort of Propositions from tradition to be applied to hot button issues, but it really was a truth seeking book. I mean, I'd be, I'd love to hear, uh, Sorab, your thoughts on, you know, this word tradition. I mean, obviously, the, there's an etymological meaning of of, of handing down, uh, but from a Catholic perspective, and there is a tradition. You know, uh, the, the tradition as you use it in this book is is a broader concept.
2: Yeah, I'd love to address that complex of things that you raised right there, um, Peter. So <clears throat> I'm a Catholic, and that means that I um, I revere, I try to bring my own life into, into coherence with something called tradition, with a capital T, which is an authority, one of the one of the sources of authority in the Catholic Church, alongside Scripture and the, and the living kind of papal magisterium. Um, and some of that capital T tradition is reflected in this book. There are emblematically Catholic figures, patristic figures um, in the book. But, um, <clears throat> but there are also traditions with a small t uh, present in the book, including, as Susanna pointed out, some surprising figures who, who may, if they were still around, may not have liked to be placed alongside the other figures in this book, <laughs> not least Andrea Dorkin. Um, Luckily, you didn't have to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, at one point, I was pondering writing about one living figure, and, and then it would have been odd, just like one, so I didn't go there. Um, at, but nevertheless, I mean, the capital T tradition venerates natural reason and the idea that um, you know, divine vis- wisdom is sort of sprinkled among the gentas, among the peoples. And so I don't, the kind of traditionalist ecumenism reflecting the book doesn't threaten my loyalty or adherence to the capital T tradition because, um, uh, you know, what, what, what a Jewish philosopher like Hans Jonas, uh, his critique of, of Gnosticism, his discovery and then critique of Gnosticism, and through a critique of Gnosticism, then a critique of various modern trends jibes with um, with the capital T tradition, so I do have that as a kind of standard um, against which to judge traditions, and that means that I also I'm not bound to uh, in in this project respect any tradition merely because it was what handed down, because there were things that were handed down, um, whether in pagan society or or the American South uh, in the Jim Crow era, what have you, but there were things handed down that were bad. Um, that, did, that that um, contradicted truer and better traditions. But insofar as there's coherence among them, uh, a, an adherence of capital T tradition can be a piece and even draw on the, on the wisdom of the small T traditions. Um, and I would just, one last point is that, although these figures in the book are really disparate figures and very diverse from modern to ancient and spanning kind of the whole globe, Um, there is a kind of interior uh, uh, coherence and integrity to each chapter in the sense that ultimately what we discover is, in each case, uh, tradition stands for what looks like a limitation on the will, on the intellect, on appetites, on desire. And we see the kind of this working out of the same strange paradox where that limit is actually examined more closely is a source of liberation, a source of happiness and freedom, and the loss of the limit, although it looks like uh, liberation at first, in hindsight uh, ends up uh, standing for um, the loss of freedom, the loss of true freedom or the loss of happiness, the loss of a a sense of being at home in the world, and so forth.
1: We We need a skeleton, otherwise we would just be blobs and ineffective. Like we wouldn't be freer without the rigidity of a skeleton. Um, We wouldn't be freer if we didn't have skin, so we were just like open to everything. Um, Yeah, and even like, I mean, the thing that really kind of turned my brain inside out the most in the book was the discussion in the Newman chapter of the idea of um, authority and conscience as not being at odds with each other, which obviously I... You know, it's one of these things where, like, you, you know it and then you follow the idea again and you kind of see it again for the first time. And that was a really that was one of those really good reading experiences. Um, just the idea that, like, we normally we have this narrative of the, you know, the independent conscience standing up against authority. And that is obviously very good. And you give examples of when that has been the case, you know, Schindler, et cetera. Um, but normatively and in the way that it kind of ought to work and often does work um authority informs conscience and authority and conscience are allies and that that seems to me to be like almost the that is the through line it seems to me of the whole book almost or authority and freedom even freedom properly understood
2: yeah i mean so this comes Actually, to set the context, this comes in the context of of the the famous Gladstone Newman debate in in Britain in the 19th century, where um, after um, the First Vatican Council uh, made its declarations, um, including um, the declaration of uh, of papal infallibility, um, Gladstone, the kind of emblematic liberal of the 19th century, said, Well, that's that. That's tantamount to a kind of moral martyr of Catholics. They don't; they can no longer exercise their consciences on whatever moral dilemmas comes their way. But their hosti- they are now their consciences are hostage to a bishop in Rome. And Newman, you know, the famous convert to Catholicism, issues this counterblast in the in the form of um, uh, the uh, uh, letter to the Duke of Norfolk. And there are many arguments in it, but the central strand is. Uh, and it's a kind of mind-blowing. You're right, and he does it so elegantly. And I try to restage the argument in, in much kind of briefer fashion. Um, that, that rightly understood, conscience and authority are the same thing under different aspects. Um, that uh, the, the true conscience is only a conscience insofar as it reflects the dictates of, of a moral law, natural law, divine law. And in insofar as any authority is a true authority, it's a, it's a support to the conscience. And so the two aren't as we often assume, uh, opposed to each other. And if you treat conscience as, as, as authority's enemy, then various sacrifices of people who really stood for the freedom of conscience become um, uh, illegible to us, right? So if um, Oscar Schindler's sacrifice didn't reflect the dictates of some authority, some kind of larger objective moral order, then, then his sacrifice also kind of rested on nothing, and therefore, when the pope, insofar as the pope is, is issuing um, infallibly binding uh, dictats on the on the consciences of Catholics, if he isn't, if he is not um, ultimately vindicating their consciences in doing so, perhaps over against their own desires of what they want to think, then he's he's undercutting his own authority, and he's not he's. Uh, and then that that really would be tantamount to moral murder, um but you know Newman carefully shows that that's not ever what the popes have done um, so yeah i mean it's um I'm very proud of that chapter and um it's it's also helped me i mean I think in writing it out, it's helped me navigate various things, including if there's a reason why I don't get into a certain kind of ecclesiastical debates that are so um so royal uh, Kind of Catholic sphere in, in the anglophone world, like the Pope did this. Rah, 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 rah. You know, I <laughs> steer clear of those in part, having worked through these questions in the writing of that chapter.
1: If your first instinct when Pope Francis says something is to get irritated about it, because like there's there's something going on there,
2: there's something wrong, and that that's precisely what Newman says. If you're, if if your first instinct is to say, I'm going to disagree with this because someone is exercising authority over me. Um, and I'm worried about my own conscience, you've misunderstood
0: what the conscience is. I also found the, the material on Newman, Newman fascinating. So from an Anabaptist perspective, obviously uh, it's, it's an interesting point. Although, of course, I, I think common to anyone living in a, a real Christian community where one is part of a body, one recognizes one is part of the body of Christ, and that means that one's conscience, while important, isn't the only thing that matters? Um, like, there is authority in, in, in a baptism, obviously. I mean, there are well, there certainly some, is some in, higher, higher structures. Because the church is not just a club; it's not just an association of people who vote on what this club should do. Right? It's the body of Christ, at, who is the King, um, and to whom one owes allegiance. Um, and in the end of the day, at, at least. In Anabaptist theory, although of course, you know, the reality um, often falls short in, in human life. It ought to be the Holy Spirit who guides us uh, in what we do, and it's really a little bit irrelevant what my personal opinion of the matter may be, much less my preferences. I do think, though, that there's one aspect to sort of the radical Reformation uh, approach to this that is worth getting into a little bit and that is what happens when you have a bad tradition right Uh, traditions at least the lowercase t traditions can obviously be really awful right Uh, as the chapter on Thurman talked
1: about and
0: you have a whole chapter on Howard Thurman who's you know combating the evil segregationist uh, politics of the south which was a culturally established tradition that people were raised in and taught them how to act um, certainly restrained the desires of those most subjugated to it um, and so and had how, ecclesiastical
2: uh, it had leg- ecclesiastical
0: legitimation right. exactly a right. whole theology to buttress it uh-huh. and yet it was challenged successfully uh-huh. um, and so on what basis do you challenge tradition what how do you reform bad traditions um because you know just the fact that this tradition doesn't render it safe
2: no i'm no that's that's absolutely right and um i i would refer to to the life of thurman he he challenged bad tradition not from a place of um well here's what i think in a way but from a mm, deeper engagement and a a more astute engagement with with the gospel, with what's been handed down by the apostles. And specifically, I mean, obviously he he focused on on the the biography of of our Lord, basically noting that um, in every way he was, uh, Jesus was an outsider, um, that he um, he was a Jew, which meant that he was part of a kind of relatively small uh, political community that at the time was um, enmeshed in, but also kind of threatened by Greco-Roman power, that he was a poor Jew. I mean, there's, there's notable things about the fact that um, you know, that he's born in a manger, um, that uh, when his mother fulfills the kind of Levit- Levitical obligation to, um, to do the offering of uh, for the firstborn, she uses uh, two turtle doves, which is what Leviticus sets aside for women who can't. You know, but at any rate, that she's it suggests that, that Mary was a woman of modest means. And all these biographical facts tell us that, as, as Thurman put it, that, that, that uh, the religion of Jesus um, really means something as a, as a social and political force insofar as it speaks to the condition of, as he put it, people with their backs against the wall at any given point in history. And at that time, and in many ways still today, that meant um, you know, African-Americans in, a, in American society. So. Um, to me that's a much that's a much sounder uh, uh, way to reform tradition than to reject tradition which I think then leaves you vulnerable um, to reject all tradition leaves you vulnerable to you know ideological sway market forces what have you there has to be some kind of rock um, mm-hmm. a, a place of, of continuity and assurance that you that you can then, it's a more commanding height from which you can survey and, and judge traditions. And in his case, it condemned uh, actually existing traditions in his time. You know, uh, it's, it's theological language that kind of constantly associated black people with like imps and devils, uh, which was something that really got on his nerves and he pointed this out. But he did it from a place of, tra- from a place of tradition.
0: As did too Ashley Abram Joshua Heschel. Who is another chapter in the book uh, because there is a way of understanding you know fascism as a replacement religion that's a sort of spawn of uh, of that liberal way of thinking.
1: It's a sort of like free-floating traditionalism almost and so I mean the the opposition to that kind of free-floating traditionalism it seems to me is a better tradition. <laughs>
2: And and I would say some some um, neo pagan impulses, which I, by the way I detect in, in some uh, kind of Twitter subspheres at the right, where um, yeah. it, it, it's bad it's bad it's unreasonable paganism. It's not it's not uh, you know the, uh, the classical tradition that's so beautifully blended with with the church's yeah. teaching, but but kind of strains paganism. Um, and I, I think you could detect that in in fascism as well. That, I'm not sure where we're I mean, like, going with that, other than just the kind of side observation.
1: Circling back to the Aquinas chapter, I mean, Aquinas did not, although Aristotle came down with the force of tradition, Aristotle, uh, you know, Aquinas did not accept Aristotle uncritically. Like, there's.
2: That's a really good point. That's a that's a, a beautiful place to for me to try to bolster my answer to Peter's question. Um, Joseph Pieper has that little wonderful little book on, on St. Thomas, and he says um, that unlike the kind of Aristotle fetishizing rationalists of his time, uh, the Latin Veroists, he actually was kind of, he was like, well, the, the philosopher is right about some things, but here's where I disagree, and here's why. And Pieper says the reason, um, Thomas could could approach Averroes and Aristotle and Avicenna and all, the, all his other kind of interlocutors in this cool-headed way where, um, you know, he approaches each one, where, where there's disagreements, he, he lays them out, but doesn't worship any of them. It's sort of... And today, you know, you, you can be a Christian and you can respectfully read a Marx, you can respectfully read a Heidegger the same way. He's precisely because there's one authority, one tradition to which he has such absolute fidelity that it gives him the confidence where he doesn't need to be in awe of Aristotle, but he doesn't also need to be... Um, closed off. Yeah, or, or or in a kind of defensive way, which was the approach of the kind of anti aristotelians uh, or we could even say anti-philosophy types of uh, in, in, in the medieval era.
0: Right.
2: It's kind of security
0: that comes with being bound. Yeah. To... Mm-hmm. So obviously, your hope in, in writing this book is to encourage people to acknowledge tradition, to not buck against it. Um, but you know, you have you have a son. I've have, I've have young kids. Um, is there hope for that pragmatically, realistically um, how does a family actually do that have you kind of thought how this becomes more than just one other lifestyle choice, hey I'm a kind of tradition minded guy Um, this is my flavor, this is my personal brand Mm -hmm. Um, to where this actually has hands and feet, because it seems that that would need some type of community to make it happen it can't be an individual uh an individual decision for tradition that's absolutely right so that the book is a kind of invitation
2: to tradition i think that some of the books you know friendly critics but they pointed out that it's very clear that it's it's written by a manhattanite and it's addressed to in a way you know persuadable liberals or persuadable urbane kind of people who might who might just be predisposed against tradition and they might encounter this and not agree with everything but be like huh there's something there maybe I'll look I'll, I'll look into this a little bit more and that's that's all the book tries to achieve but beyond that I I'm, I'm kind of resolutely against the idea that that you can do this on your own um, and that it's just you know it's like well we're gonna you know our family is gonna be like this um, it it has to be a collective endeavor and it has to be therefore a a political endeavor, and if I were to step beyond the unbroken thread and the book, and maybe think about what my next step will be intellectually, it's so much of the uh, forces that make it hard for people to live um, ordinary, decent sort of lives, virtuous lives, um, lives that where tradition has a has a coherent place and isn't just a lifestyle choice. Um, so much of the forces that work against that are economic forces, are are. Um, it has to do with the material substrate of society, and so that's that's why I'm very actually allergic to a kind of moralism or traditionalism that um, just offers nothing but kind of exhortation, like and we should all just uh, go to church and get married, and um, without paying attention to how, for most notably, the way we organize our economy, especially for kind of downscale workers, working class people, makes it very difficult for them to do that, and so. You know people in my social economic class might pick up traditionalism as one more lifestyle and we're economically enabled to do that but um that doesn't change a political community and the the injustice frankly not should gnaw at the, at the people who just think of it as a lifestyle choice because for many it isn't so um no absolutely it has to be a political endeavor and i increasingly think an economic and a, a matter of kind of political economy of, of rethinking a lot about how we organize labor, how we organize relations between labor and capital, the, the, the disparities between the two, the eye-watering kind of economic inequalities. That's not really in the book. It's hinted at in the book, but um, it's it, this is looking beyond the book to a larger project.
1: Are you going to expand your Augustine chapter into a whole like neo-Augustinian political? Not the
2: Augustine chapter, but uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm kicking around another book project, and basically <laughs> uh, I'll give it a preview, which makes this podcast like worthwhile for listeners. So um, it's not just if they listen to another podcast about the unbroken thread. Here's a little kind of bonus, but I just feel like I I, I want to write a book about how we're living in a dystopia, and it, it's, it's be, in many ways resembles. And Patrick uh, denine makes this point really well in in uh, Why Liberals Failed that. Um, liberal societies are very good at imagining dystopias, where we see that the society we live—if you just kind of crank up, it, it, you know, it, its interior developments—eventually, very quickly, you could end up in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and how dark oh, that man. is. But we can't, we can't turn the crank the other way. And so, I want to write a movie, a, 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 a book about dystopian movies and their relationship to the to the.
1: That's that would be over. extremely cool. Okay, well. Can't
0: wait to we'll
1: read that, that book
0: and talk about it, although we should there's so much here that we could go on more about thank you sorab for joining us uh, in the midst of your kind of busy book launch season and, uh, yeah, and thank uh, you uh, for having me this this was a wonderful conversation and uh,
2: hopefully we can catch up in person soon
1: more beer more beer half beer indeed